Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. And we're, we are recording this episode on September 1st, 2017. And before we get into the episode, we are less than two weeks away from the Afterlife Research and Education's annual symposium in Scottsdale, Arizona. I just found out the event is sold out with well over 500 attendees. Now, if you are listening right now and you are attending, I would love to meet you in person. On Thursday night before the symposium, I'm going to be in the lobby of the Embassy Suites, which is where the conference is held at, and I will be standing next to a big blue banner, standing banner, so you can easily find me. And as a gift from me to you, I have created a whole bunch of We Don't Die wristbands. And on the inside, it says, I am a divine soul. So I'd love to give you one of those. And also, while we're at the conference, you'll notice other people with the wristbands, and you'll say, oh, that's another listener of Sandra's show. So it's a nice way to meet each other. Now, if you cannot go to the symposium, I totally understand, maybe next year, but you can sign up uh, or find out more on the website afterlifestudies.org. This is being presented by the Afterlife Studies uh, Afterlife Research and Education Institute, which is a non-profit organization that really is committed to delivering the cutting-edge information about the reality of the afterlife, help through grief, how we can effectively communicate with our loved ones in the afterlife. And I, it's uh, currently $25 a year to join, be a member. That uh, price is going to go up to 39 very reasonable. Um, but you will be contacted with all the cutting-edge information. So I can't say enough good stuff about the AREI. So again, you go to Afterlife studies.org. And also during the weekend, I don't know the layout of the embassy suites and the banquet rooms and where the conference is exactly going to be held, but I plan on bringing that standing banner wherever I am. So during the breaks, come find me, come meet me, come get a wristband, come say hello. Uh, There are really hundreds of our listeners that will be there, so I want to meet you face to face. Okay? And that's all I have to say about that. Now, on to our show. I'm delighted to introduce you to this man who's got an incredible story to tell. I'm not going to say too much about him because I want him to tell you in his own words. His name is Tony Woody, and he is a career U.S. Navy Chief Petty Officer with 22 years of honorable service. He was a P-3 Orion aircraft instructor, flight engineer for over 20 years. And while in service, he had some incredible experiences that he's going to share in his own words. So without any other introduction, I want to say Chief Tony Woody, welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Thank you, Sandra. It's very much a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to uh, working with you. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting uh, every time I get to have one of these interviews because it's like opening a Christmas present. You just don't know what you're going to get, but you know it's going to be great. So thank you. How about a little bit about you? You are coming to us today from the state of New Hampshire, correct? Yes. My wife and I have been living in Exeter, New Hampshire since I think 2001. Uh, We've been married a little over 28 years now. And... um, uh, and that's how we, you know, my wife's from New England, so that's how this East Texas boy ended up uh, freezing his tail off every New <laughs> England. Uh, but I guess it's better than being in the hurricanes. <laughs> yeah, oh, I know. And um, 
Yeah, and you and I are kind of neighbors. I think we're within a half hour distance of each yeah. other. So be fun to meet in person. A little, let's hear a little bit about you. How did you end up getting involved with the Navy to begin with? You grew up in Texas. Yeah, um, small town in East Texas, really small. I mean, I had the same first grade teacher my dad did, and I was the second uh, uh, to the youngest of six kids. So that should tell you something. Yes. <laughs> Um, little tiny town in East Texas called Elkhart. Uh, and my dad had was in World War II and, and when he was in the service when he was younger. And so not a whole lot of opportunities in East Texas where I grew up when you graduate high school and couldn't afford to go to college at the time. So I followed my dad's footsteps and joined the Navy. <clears throat> and it turned out to be uh, back then they had a commercial on television that said the Navy, it's not just a job, it's an adventure. Man, that was a gross understatement, I have to say. Uh, and uh, so I joined the Navy, went to boot camp and uh, did a little training. I was going to be a flight engine, a, um, an engine mechanic uh, originally, aviation machinist mate. So what's that called? Is what that is called, but um, a jet engine mechanic. And uh, when I got to my first command, <clears throat> I got sent to a P3 Orion squadron in Jacksonville, Florida. And at 18 years old, when you first get to your first command as a junior enlisted, they put you in what's called the first lieutenant division where you do these, uh, you know, the jobs nobody else wants to do. Right. <laughs> um, and so I was at that time put in the uh, squadron snack bar. Each command had their own little snack bar and I was running the register and the commanding officer came in there. I'd never met him and uh, he was in his flight suit. And I asked him what it was like to go fly one of those big old birds. And he said, come with me, son, and I'll show you. And that very day, uh, he hooked me up with a flight engineer. I followed him around for a couple of hours as he showed me what he did on a pre-flight. And then I'm in the flight station at the uh, approach into the runway after we've started the engines and everything. And we're waiting for, the, for uh, we've taxied and we're waiting to take the runway. We're waiting for another airplane to land. We had a bit of a wait. And the skipper turned to the engineer and said, what do you think? Should we put him in there? He goes, yeah. Next thing I know, the engineer gets out of his seat and they tell me to get in the chair. And, wow. Uh, I'm pushing power levers now all of a sudden. Wow, 18 uh, years old. Yeah, and two hours earlier, I was selling hot dogs, you know, so where else can you do that? And we get in the air after the takeoff. The engineer is standing up behind me doing all the uh, checklist stuff because I'm a know-nothing nugget at that point. And, uh, and after they got done with the climb checklist, the skipper smacks me on my knee and says, by the way, son, you know you can do that job. And he knew what he was doing. He saw a young kid with an interest. He set the hook and reeled me in, and uh, that was all I wanted to do. Uh, and so I worked at it really hard. After I got done with first lieutenant division, I went straight into the flight engineer shop and started on the job training as a flight engineer. And by the time I was 21 years old, I'd earned my wings and was the youngest man in the history of the P3 Navy community, uh, which has been around since 1962, uh, to earn my wings as a flight engineer on a P3 Orion aircraft. And that started my career. Wow, really incredible. What does an engineer do? Because I know there's different seats up there in the cockpit, right? Uh, we called it the center seat because it's one of the, it's, I think it's the only airplane with a flight engineer where the engineer doesn't sit off to the side in the back. You actually sit facing forward right between the pilot mm -hmm. and the pilot. And so on takeoff, I would bend forward and uh, I was the one that set power on takeoff. It's also the only plane with a flight engineer where the engineer handles the power levers. So it was very exciting for that, that first day. And um, I just... Uh, Kept at it and uh, loved it, and I was tailor-made for that job. Ironically, though, when I was about 10 years old, um, 
I'd never been around airplanes. I'd never seen an airplane up close, even a small one. And we went to an airbase uh, one day or a, uh, a near Dallas area when I was a kid. And I saw a B-50, uh, B-50 what was that? Um, oh, I can't remember. Not a B-52, but uh, it was a large uh, aircraft, mm-hmm. an airplane, and I just fell in love with it. And I p- told my dad that day that one day I was going to fly in a plane like that. Wow. I knew at that moment at 10 years old, I just knew it. And eight years later, that's what I was doing. <laughs> wow. My dad worked at a little airport when he was 16 and he ended up going into the Air Force and plenty of stories from him and went off to being captain with American Airlines. And, uh, you know, I always hear the stories of him flying, whether uh, whatever seat he was in in the cockpit, you know, I'd hear the stories of, and he eventually made captain and yeah, the rest is history. Yeah, I'm sure he's got his stories too. There's, there's an aviation, uh, there's a, aviators will tell you the definition of aviation is hours and hours and hours of boredom interspersed with moments of stark terror. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no question. Wrong in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's all great. And before I forget, thank you for your service and your, really your commitment to our country. It takes a, a lot and, I know I speak for all of us. Dollars to have all that fun. (laughs) Yeah, but I speak for all of us for you know protecting our country and 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 doing all of that. So, where does the story go on to? Because I know that you've had some incredible experiences in your career. Well, Uh, I was okay. I was in Florida when I started out, and mm -hmm. so by the time I left Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, my next set of orders, uh, this was about six years into it almost, five and a half years. And I already had, I don't know, probably 2,000 hours flight experience by then. I transferred to Barbers Point Naval Air Station, Hawaii. And um, we were, I'd, I'd been there for, I got there in 1981. And then in 1982, um, every even year number, they have the RIMPAC military exercises rim of the pacific is what it's called Mm -hmm. Um, it's the largest military exercise on the planet that involves numerous different countries and so it was my crew's turn to go flying on the one of the missions and we go out for 12 13 hour flight um so we took off and we're fully loaded now this is a 70 ton airplane so it carries 62,000 pounds of fuel so we we took off, climbed, started the climb out, got to about 10,000 feet, had an engine malfunction on number one, and we had to shut it down. And you can't dump all the fuel, so we dumped what we could, uh, and then we had to fly around till we got to max allowable land weight because you don't want to land too heavy for fear of damaging the structural integrity. Mm-hmm. And uh, we come back, came back in to land, and we did the emergency brief and declared an emergency and all that, and when you do that, they literally put uh, the emergency response vehicles, big fire trucks really is what they are, on literally on the sides of the run- each side of the runway. You have two at a certain place, two more further down, and two more further down. And as you go past them on landing, they pull in behind you and chase you. So they're right there in case anything goes wrong. That's typically a good thing. But that day it wasn't. Um, and fortunately, we landed on, it was parallel runways. The heading was 040, and we landed on the left runway. Had I been, had we landed on the right one, I would not be here talking to you today. Um, <clears throat> so 
uh, when we came in and landed, we have to go a lot faster because we're heavy. And instead of landing with the normal fuel load of about 8,000 pounds left on top of your air, uh, airfield when we get done with a mission, we still had 42,000 pounds of fuel on board. So you have to fly a lot faster to keep the plane in the air. Right. And um, so at those speeds, things go wrong in a hurry. So we landed at about 135 knots, which is around just over 155 miles an hour. Um, and main mounts touched the ground. Everything seemed okay. The no nose gear came down and we started a swerve to the right. And we briefed that. You expect a swerve to the right because you have two engines on that side giving you reverse thrust with one on the other side. But the pilot put in incorrect rudder for some reason thinking he was putting in proper correction. And then he jams in more because it kept swerving to the right. And the next thing we know, uh, all of a sudden, we're headed directly at one of the fire trucks that's sitting on the side of the runway. And within seconds, I, I all of a sudden had death coming at me at over 150 miles an hour. And there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. It was the most helpless, ho hopeless feeling I've ever felt. Um, and I had a three-year-old son at the time, and all I could think about in those last few seconds was that I was never going to see my son again, or hold my son again, or see my family. And uh, we came so close to that fire truck that the right wingtip went over the top of the fire truck, and I could see the guy on the top of the fire truck with the water cannon uh he's in his silver fire suit i couldn't hear him but i could see him screaming at the top of his lungs uh in terror because he probably thought he was dead too just sure. like it's not a you think you're gonna die you know it you know it it's coming you know it and uh i'm dead there's nothing i can do here it comes um and all of a sudden i found myself out of the airplane, literally up above and to the right of the airplane. Uh, and I'm still seeing the perspective from my flight engineer seat too. I'm in two places at once and I'm very confused. I don't understand what's going on, but the me that was out of the airplane, I call it fractured consciousness. I don't, I don't know what else to call it. Um, the part of me that was outside the airplane could see the propellers spinning and everything was in super slow motion. It was like a time distortion thing. Um, and I literally watched the propeller, which was 13 feet from tip to tip, weighs 2,200 pounds, spins at 1,020 rounds a minute, and is moving forward at 150 plus miles an hour. Uh, I watched it gap the front left corner of the fire truck as the blades were spinning, they just, it, it, it went over the fire truck, but they gapped it and went past it. So a split second, one way or the other, that propeller would have slammed into that fire truck. It was literally like, I bet you couldn't have gotten a piece of paper between those, the fire truck and the, and the propeller blade when it went through. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> that really was amazing to see that from that perspective. And then the, plane is now leaving the runway at about a 30 or 35 degree angle across the asphalt between the runways and it's throwing up all this dust and debris and all of us i started seeing that and then the next thing i know 
I'm now my consciousness is fracturing into to where all these other anything that was floating in the air, any piece of debris, it didn't matter what it was, I was in that location too. And every is all these all these perspectives is all the debris flying around. I'm flying around with each one of them, as the it's, you would think it would seem very chaotic, um, and it was in its own way. But it had this feeling of sublime perfection where I knew every piece of debris was exactly where it was supposed to be, be doing what it was supposed to be doing when it was supposed to be doing it. And there was this absolute calm effect going on, which uh, I didn't know if I was dead. I didn't know what was going on. I was just totally confused trying to understand what was happening to me. Um, and I still had the perspective of me being in the flight engineer seat as well. And we ended up going all the way across the asphalt between the two runways. I could see the fire trucks chasing us. Uh, all of that. It was just totally strange. And uh, we finally came to a stop half on, half off the other runway. We literally went all the way across to the other runway, uh, runway four right. And by the time we realized uh, the plane was okay, uh, the fire trucks caught up to us. Um, and we ended up adding power and finishing the rollout on another runway. So I literally did a three-engine emergency landing in a four-engine heavyweight aircraft and used, did one approach and one landing and used two entirely different runways to do that with. Um, so I didn't know, I didn't know what to say or, or anything. I looked at the co-pilot. I watched him when he came off his adrenaline rush and he looks at me and I look at him and I'm like, did you see that? He he said, "Hell yeah," and but I don't think he understood what I was really talking about. Right. And I didn't know how to express it at the time, and it was just uh, I just did my job at that point. I didn't know what else to do, um, but it confused me, and um, so I didn't say anything to anybody that day. <clears throat> uh, the next day, they wouldn't do this these days, but the next day we did a refly, and the commanding officer took pilot and myself back out to shoot touch and goes and I started having post-traumatic stress on the first approach not didn't even think about it, it, it might affect me that way I had no that, that term wasn't even uh, developed yet post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, disorder yeah. didn't even exist back then uh, that term and so you know back then they put you back on the horse and see if you could ride so <laughs> I bent forward because I didn't want the skipper to see my face and I couldn't look outside uh, on first few approaches. And I had to, because of the terror that I was experiencing, mm -hmm. but it was, so I got through that day and that flight after several landings, I was finally had convinced myself I could do the job. And it's probably the only time that I'll ever run off the runway and get your head back in the game. But I knew if the commanding officer saw my face, he'd realize I wasn't, uh, able to do that job at that point and uh but i got through it and then on wednesday <clears throat> that happened on a monday the the incident did the original uh aircraft incident the refly happened on a tuesday then on wednesday there was this television show. i know this kind of sounds unrelated but for some reason uh something happened on that monday that opened a gateway somehow okay. i don't understand it but um I went to bed that night after 
my wife and I had watched the television show that came on back then called That's Incredible. And they had this man on there named Leslie Lemke, L-E-M-K-E. I think you can still look him up on uh, YouTube videos about it. And uh, so I'm not going to go into any details about his story, but what I felt was I was seeing my first miracle. And I now understand everything's a miracle. I didn't understand that at 24 years old. Um, but um, I went to bed that night and said just a s- simple prayer of genuine just genuine gratitude, really uh, short prayer. I'll never forget it. Just thanking God for allowing me to see my first miracle. And then I added the words, and it'd be nice if you could do something like that for me someday. And you, you make that statement in your head and you don't really expect anything, you know, of right. it. Right. Just, right. Why would you? Um, but that's what I said in my head. And I never forgot that and uh, went to sleep. And then sometime in the middle of the night, <clears throat> we used to call old Dark 30 in the military. I don't know, 3.30 or so or 4 in the morning. I don't know what it was, but it was still very dark and very early. <clears throat> there was this instantaneous shift in location of my consciousness. I didn't go through a tunnel. I didn't physically get injured or physically die. But all of a sudden, I'm in this black void. And I'm seeing this absolutely beautiful, golden, white, liquid, molten, crystalline, white light that was pouring out energy in all directions of just profound, unconditional love. And I instantly knew I was in the presence of my creator. You can't not know because the energy from... I call it the heart of God was pouring right through me, expressing to me on a extremely intimate level, uh, what God felt about me as as an individual and as a, uh, uh, as one of God's children. That's the way I view it now. Uh, I was being flooded with profound, unconditional love on a cosmic scale that cannot be expressed in human words. And I said, the three words and just sheer dumbfounded awe of my what I was seeing, feeling, and experiencing. I said, oh, "Oh my goodness!" And the instant I said the word "goodness," the essence of goodness on a cosmic scale poured through me, and I could feel the difference between goodness and love. And the love was by far the most power I could. I was one with the infinite power, too. I felt it. It was this unbelievably infinite feeling of infinite power that was under absolute perfect control. And it was equally as it were, as powerful as it was. It was also equally benevolent on the same level. And I knew anybody will know that if that being didn't want you to exist anymore, you would be wiped out in an instant. But you all, I also knew how precious I was this individual, this being of light, this creator I call my God, uh, was expressing to me with energy how deeply loved I am unconditionally. And by the way, I grew up in East Texas, Southern Baptist uh, fundamentalist perspective and so after that happened to me, I had to change my whole way of thinking because mm-hmm. that didn't fit with what I experienced. But the um, 
Um, and I'm an engineer, so I kind of need need all the uh, details to be to fit, you know. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so the uh, my best analogy on what the love felt like. Uh, but before I do that, I'll continue on with, so the love was there, the power was immense, it was under absolute, complete control and per- perfect control. I was in a place of perfection, and I knew it. I mean, you just feel it. Uh, the whole environment itself is uh, like air dominates this area here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Earth. Well, imagine the air doesn't just dominate your outside of you it dominates your very cells and energy and your in you so this there's this immutable spiritual law that i call it on the other side that prevents any negative expression of any kind from being expressed while in the presence of that being and it's just all that's how it works there i don't know how that can happen but god that's why god's god and i'm not right 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 so um I said the three words, oh, my goodness, and then the goodness blasted through me. Joy came next, bliss, peace, ecstasy. I was home, and I knew it. I was finally home. Uh, and I had this, I call it, the, this moment, I call it the mer- urge to merge. You have this instinctive, deep desire to go deeper into the light. That's all you care about, you know, um, and I tried to i was attract you're attracted to that light just like a moth to a flame you mm-hmm. can't do that and the next thing i realized was uh i saw through the peripheral vision i could see these the backs of a pair of hands uh up in the air to the either side of the light <clears throat> in this black void and i'm seeing it kind of curious who what are, the, what are these hands doing there uh, and then the rest of the bedroom started coming in my bedroom that I was in started coming into view peripherally. Uh, and that's when I realized that those were my hands that were up in the air. I had sat up in bed and I had my hands up and then I could s- see the rest of the room come back in. And at the foot of the bed across the room, there was no wall anymore. And the room was lit up like a billion stars. Um, but, and I realized I had set up in bed and I was looking at my hands and, and I think God did this for a reason because he knew I was, I'm an engineer. And if I had not happened this way, I would have simply written this off as some sort of exotic dream later. Yes. But I couldn't do that because of the way it happened. So I'm, I'm now sitting up in bed. I've got tears going down my face. And my hands are up in the air and, and I could see my wife's feet through my peripheral vision and I could tell that her back was to me. And I'm thinking, ah, how can she sleep through all this? <laughs> you know, it's like a billion stars in the bedroom and all this energy and the wall is gone at the end of the room. And I literally had God in my bedroom and my I couldn't understand how she could sleep through all of this. And then I went, oh, I'm. I'm I'm really awake. This is really happening to me. And and then uh at the moment God realized that I flat out knew I wasn't dreaming uh and I was awake. The 
whole, it was about a 10 foot circle of the wall and ceiling in my bedroom at the foot of the bed across the room was the light. And it all shrunk down, not instantly, but just over about a second or two, shrunk down to the center <clears throat> and went away. And I just, I'll never forget how, how that felt because I just had the most, the greatest love I will ever know ripped away from me. And I just sat there the rest of the night staring at the wall because there was this residual spiritual energy still fluctuating through the wall mm -hmm. uh, or in the wall or, um, and I just kept praying and asking that the light, hoping the light would come back um, until the sun gradually started coming up. And as that happened, the energy, as the room got brighter, the energy faded away in the wall. And then my wife woke up and she says, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I had no idea how to explain any of that. And uh, uh, the following Sunday, I went to the church looking for help because I didn't know what to do with that. I needed, I needed an answer. Sure. I needed a lot of answers and I had no, no understanding of, the, of, the, of what happened to me or how that could happen or what am I supposed to do with it? Uh, at that point, I wasn't even considering what that meant as far as who and what I am. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what to do next. And, uh, I went to a church in Wineye where we had been going to, and uh, they had a guest pastor there that day. And he looked at me kind of oddly. And after I expressed it to him, I was able to get it out because, uh, but every time I brought it up for the first few years, I'd start crying because it was just so overwhelming. But I was able to express to him the story and what happened. And he turned his kind of tilted his head and looked at me a little oddly and then turned his back on me and walked away and never said a word. And so I kind of got angry after that because I felt like I got kicked out of heaven with no answers because there were no words spoken to me when I was in the light. Mm -hmm. Just all energy of from God expressing to me how deeply precious I am and important uh, as an individual. And it's the same for everybody. I'm not claiming any special status here or anything at all. I'm just, that's just, I knew that that love and that depth of, of, uh, love was for everyone, not just me, but God makes you feel so personally important, um, and precious. And so my best analogy of how, how, uh, what the love felt like is this. Uh, after over 35 years of thinking about it, um, and it, believe me, there's not a day that went by that I haven't thought about it since it happened. Um, but the love felt like I was that precious to God because I was going to be the last newborn baby at the end of the history of the life of the entire universe. And I was being loved, held, and cradled by all the mothers in all the galaxies in all the previous history of, of the universe all at once. And uh, that's the best analogy I've been able to come up with. That's beautiful. Uh, Tony, does that... Does go it, ahead. Does it, this memory stay in your mind better than any dream oh. or any 
other memory? I mean, does it stay alive? It, it's it's every day. It's it is seared into my consciousness. There's no way anyone can ever forget anything like that. Yeah, the reason I ask that is I've interviewed many people who've had near-death experiences and some that have had out-of-body experiences, and the level of memory is as if it just happened. And it, it, it just, it's one of those, and even if it's 70 years ago, it, it is clearer than anything that just happened yesterday. It's more real than anything I've ever experienced here by far. Yeah, and that to me is just one of those signs that this is a really divine occurrence uh i've never had one um but but th- that is a commonality and also that feeling of that unconditional love that can't be put into words no. um and the light and you know i feel really grateful myself that you're sharing this well the, i just got back from denver colorado last i think it was early august and uh, I was one of the speakers there at the International Association for, for Near-Death Studies because uh, we're trying to get this information out to help other veterans. Yes. They got, I met a, a captain that's active duty in the Navy back when, when I was there. She's a psychiatrist or psychologist or something. I can't remember which. Um, and she has done some studies, and I can't remember her name because it's a long, hard name to pr- pronounce. She's from an Indian india descent and um her first name is mina but i can't i can't say her last name it's too complicated that's me. okay um she told me that that they are the statistics that they have that about 50 percent of veterans combat veterans are having these experiences and we're in the military it's not <clears throat> accepted very well if you start talking about these kind of things and uh, so we, through IONS, and I got involved with the International Association of Near-Death Studies about four or five years ago, about four years ago, when I first heard about them. Um, mm-hmm. I have since been working with Diane Corcoran, who was the former president of IONS, and she's a retired Army colonel and was a nurse in Vietnam. Uh, and that's what piqued her interest was when the soldiers there were in their recovery room after surgery were telling her they, about their experiences and she's been pushing to try for over 40 years to try and get something done about this so that the veterans or, or active duty military have have the ability to freely speak about these kind of things because uh, it is outside the military box by far. Uh, and so you don't talk about it because you don't want to when you're active duty because you don't want to be labeled crazy. And I knew if I did, I would never be able to fly again. I love being a flight engineer, so I, I clammed up. I just didn't talk about it. Uh, but that doesn't work either. Uh, and because I got angry, uh, remember, at the uh, chaplain or the uh, uh, pastor. Of course. And kind of got angry at God, too, because I wasn't given any answers. Uh, no words were spoken to me. It was just the energy of all of that. And, um, and then it was just over. And so... I didn't even understand that for probably for the first 10 or 15 years that I was experiencing grief uh, as well because I had lost the greatest love I'll ever know. And uh, so it's been a very uh, interesting ride. So what we did with the IONS community is uh, created a video called Understanding uh, uh, Veterans Near-Death Experiences. And 
it's been very professionally done. It's about 36 minutes long. And the trailer for that video is, uh, will be on your, your website next to however you post this, but, uh, where my name is. Yeah. It'd be just it, anybody listening right now. It's just below in the description. I have the YouTube link on there. So just scroll down and you you'd be able to click on it. And, uh, so soon that video will be available for sale on the irons website but um i, I don't get anything full from it that financially i'm not i don't care about that i just want to help the other veterans and uh so myself a couple other veterans shallow harris and glenn i uh, cannot remember glenn's last name right now um and also a family member of a veteran that's passed already she discusses her name's alma how because her father was labeled uh, as having psychological problems because of his spiritual experience, it had a very negative effect on his family over the decades, as did did in mine when it ended up costing me a marriage. And there were, I just had a lot of problems adapting, readapting to this place after having had a taste of perfection. It's really hard coming back here. Um, So, the purpose of the video is to help other veterans and to train uh, medical professionals, whether they're military, veterans administration, or civilians. It doesn't matter because you don't have to be in the military to have a near-death experience. Right. Uh, and this, these type of problems are happening to everyone that have had a spiritual experience. Uh, if they don't understand what happened to them, it's very it changes you forever. Uh, and so we're just trying to get this information out there to let people know there are other options uh, and there are other, there's a lot more information out there and here's where you can come get the answers. And for the medical community, here's how to deal with it. Here's how to help these people uh, talk about it. And so all we ever really needed was validation. That's it. Uh, that particular moment when that individual turned his back on me and walked away, had he done something different it would have been a much better uh, outcome uh, or a different outcome but it took me a long time to adapt and integrate that into my life Um, from after it happened to me I went in and looked at my own religion and then every other religion I could look at Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Judaism, Sufi, Sufism if it had an ism behind it I learned about it (laughs) Uh, read every near-death book I could get my hands on. Uh, and this was back in 1982 when it happened to me. We didn't have cell phone. It, had I just simply been validated and allowed mm-hmm. to talk about it in the beginning, I think it would have had an entirely different outcome with my life, and there would have been a lot fewer problems. But um, So that's what we're doing at IONS is trying to get this video uh, out there. Uh, um, and soon it will be, that's what I was going to say, is very soon it will be for sale uh on the ions.org, I-A-N-D-S.org website. Um, uh, we're hoping to get that throughout, spread everywhere um, if we can. But um, if you know of anyone that's had had a uh, near-death experience and they're struggling, let them see the trailer to that video. And as soon as that becomes available for sale, uh, that's going to help a lot of people. I've already introduced it into the Navy uh, through the Portsmouth, uh, I mean, uh, um, Norfolk, Virginia Medical Center uh, uh, at the naval base there. So their site uh, ward now has a copy of the video. 
and we're slowly but surely getting this information out there. Um, well, it's so necessary. I, like I said, I've spoken with many people on this show that have had near-death experiences, and while now they are out there in the world making a difference, which I think is a common denominator for most people, every one of them seems to have hit a low, whether it's some have turned to drugs, some to alcohol, some, and, and I think this is right after this happened. I think you're right as far as you're grieving. You experience this, you have this great experience filled with love and light and connection to the divine, and then it's gone. Yeah. And you're homesick too. Uh, it's a comp, so it's more grief related. It's not post traumatic stress related. I want to clarify that mm-hmm. uh, you you cannot medicate away a spiritual experience. That's just impossible. Um, but that's what's happening. Uh, so we're trying to educate that community of people that uh, of the doctors uh, so that they can have a new perspective on mental health issues and learn how to differentiate the difference between someone who's had a spiritual experience versus someone who's had a near uh, a uh, actual post-traumatic stress situation. Um, to give you an idea, when I had the refly of the flight the second day, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I didn't have any of the out-of-body experience or any of that. I just had the feeling of the abstract terror on that first approach uh, and couldn't look outside at the runway coming at me anymore. Uh, I just couldn't look outside. And that was a whole different feeling than what I had uh, when I had the spiritual experience is not at all the same. And so that's what we're trying to do is educate the community that way. And so after all that happened to me and I did the research in the, on, on religion, uh, all I, I came, so I know what the standard is because I was there and I, I could feel it pouring through me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I, that's always been my measuring stick. And so I went through for years looking at all these different religions uh, and came to the understanding that the majority of them uh, were had the spiritual principles in their in their writings that I uh, experienced on the other side. But a lot of them also had man man made uh, agendas in there that had nothing to do with what I experienced on the other side. So I kind of walked away from that and just became started being just spiritual and making a personal contact and uh, and meditating and things like that trying to make a conscious contact with a god of my own understanding and uh, so that's that led me to all the studying about the nature of the universe i wanted to know how god can make all of this and i can be here physically in this body and uh so i learned everything from uh the big bang the Planck time, they call it, at the first billionths of a second of the uh, universe and how the forces developed and the the universe evolved, our galaxy, our solar system, everything from subatomic particles popping in and out of existence, which literally make your body from nothing, uh, to uh, supermassive black holes. And nobody can tell you how those subatomic particles come in and out of existence and nobody can tell you what happens when you cross the event horizon of a black hole other than god god created all of that and so i've come to the understanding that everything is god consciousness at some level um 
I don't fully understand all of that. But that's, <laughs> and I don't think any of us will. <laughs> I mean, maybe even when we cross over for the, uh, the final time. But well, I, I do know it, this because I felt experienced it. In the light, we are all one. There is no separation. Wow. Uh, and so that's kind of what I've evolved to. And the only books that I've found, which I found a couple of years ago when a lady named Lilia found me on my story on the internet, mm-hmm. uh, is one of the first speech speeches is the first speech I'd ever made. And I wasn't very good at it back then. Uh, and at uh, Virginia beach Irons uh, community. And she said, you know, Tony, I'm, I, she's now my mentor, spiritual mentor. She's taught me so much. Um, she said, <clears throat> told me her how she found my video and she didn't want to sit and watch all of it. But God kept telling her to sit that back down and watch. She said, Tony, I'm a girl. You know, I'm a girly girl. I don't care about engineers or airplanes. And I just didn't want to hear all of that. <laughs> you know, right. and I kept talking away. And she had been wa- looking at near death videos over and over and over again. Something was telling her to do that until she got to mine. And she said, all right, this is the last one. God, I'm not going to look at any more. And then she kept getting up and leaving the computer and having to go back because she said God kept telling her to sit down and finish it. And then when she heard me say in the video, I've been seeking the truth for over 30 years and I still haven't found it. Uh, that's when she knew she had to contact me. And when she did that, that set me on a path to the only books I've ever found. As I've read through the first four now, which are very deep books. Uh, called the St. Germain Foundation, G-E-R-M-A-I-N. There is no E on the end of that word. Okay. Uh, and I'd never heard of St. Germain no, at that point. Me neither. But uh, as I read these books, the first three books are the story of how the St. Germain Foundation came into existence uh, when it all started with the Ballard family back in the 30s. And all of this stuff got recorded. And he, Mr. Ballard was being downloaded all this information and uh they recorded it literally because they had radio back then right so he they could record that information and it ended up being 20 books that came about because of all these dictations wow right and they're called the i am discourses you know we are all part of the great mighty i am presence the magical i am presence and uh so so i'm still learning a lot but i've started applying these principles that these books are teaching me and i've been astonished in the past year of how this all works and how we can uh, manifest into our world our lives we are literally co-creators with god and these are the instruction manuals on how to become an ascended master. So we don't have to keep coming back here over and over and over again, experiencing these uh, pain and heartbreak and whatever other suffering occurs here uh, on this in this realm of existence. But um, so I'm excited about learning more and more about St. Germain and how this works. Uh, yeah, I'd love to, maybe and when we're done, you can send me a link to. I'll do that. And um, we can share this also under this episode. We'll have a link. I've never heard of that. and I had not either, but keep in mind, I. Uh, uh, it was just, just the way it all happens, the synchronistic events and how it all comes about. It gets hard. It just gets to a point where you really can't ignore it anymore. No. You know, I tried ignoring everything that happened to me for the first ten years, and that didn't work out well. <clears throat> um, 
if these books are, that's what I've been looking for. And uh, I know that the first three books are the story of how it all came about, how these books came about and the history of it, the history of the St. Germain Foundation. Uh, And I would have thought, had it not happened to me, I would have read these books before I read the books. I would have believed the books were just a a fantasy novel of fiction, you know, but it happened to me. (laughs) So I I have had to read these books with a different perspective because I know it's real. Yeah. uh, So I was very impressed with the first three books and the stories about how America came about and why America is so important to to God. So there's a patriotic perspective uh, in the first three books as well about America and why St. Germain is protecting America uh, because we are the voice of freedom. And that's what God is, is the voice of freedom. I was free on the other side for the first time that I ever remember in this life. I was actually free for the first time. And uh, Well, even though St. Germain, these books bring up America, we've got lots of listeners in other countries, and I think it's probably the message goes being human, a lot of it that's in the St. Germain books, correct? Oh, yeah. It's you don't have to be an American <laughs> to get the value. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. No, I'm just pointing that out because sure. of my military background and things like that. Yeah. But, um, you know, Tony, I, mean, I find it so interesting that you say 50% of combat veterans have had these experiences. How did you start finding out other people's stories? Was it through sharing your story that other people started coming and being associated with, like, Diane Corcoran and uh, some of the other people? Uh, it was a few, you know, it was about four years ago, maybe five or six. I can't remember exactly. Not that it, long ago, though. Yeah, I started five, I started looking at near-death experience videos, and that's how I learned. Somehow, I cannot remember now how because it happened too long ago, I found out about Virginia Beach uh, community. They're, they've got a strong, uh, you got the Edgar Casey uh, Museum down there and the ARE Museum uh ARE community. I can't remember what AR means. Something I forget. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, but I, they were looking for speakers and I had, I'm like, I need to call these guys. And so I ended up doing that and uh, talked to a man named Dick, uh, Dick Dingus and, uh, told him my story over the phone and they invited me down there to speak. And, uh, that was how it all started. And that one thing led to another. And then I met Lilia. Lilia got involved years later, uh, two years ago. She's the one that got involved with helping uh, connect me with um, Diane Corcoran, who had, was the president of Ions at the time. She recently resigned from that p- uh, position just for whatever reasons. But um, she'd been that pre- president of that uh, Ions community for a long time before that. And she and Lilia just pestered her and pestered her. She, you've got to talk to this guy. You've got to talk to this guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she's like, who is Tony Woody? You know, and she finally ended up connecting somehow because of Lilia. And now it, and everything after that is history and how it's all fallen together. And I've now since spoken twice at two Ions annual conventions, the one year last year in Orlando. And then they just had one a little about a month ago in uh Uh, Denver, Colorado area. 
And so that's kind of how I just, I just kind of start walking the path and let God handle the details now um, and see where the subtle synchronistic uh, and spiritual messages I get direct me to go and what to, what to do next. And yeah. I always pray about it and ask, send me a sign. And just a couple of days ago, um, I was reading through the book and I, that was the first time I've ever read in any book where it talked about the, what the light looked like and the molten liquid golden crystalline effect. Mm-hmm. That I, and I was getting a deep tissue massage. I have some injuries in the military. So my massage therapist, who's a little over seven months pregnant and is very spiritual as well, and we were talking about all this. Um, uh, her name's Rosalind. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I was getting ready to tell her about what I read, and all of a sudden, spirit just took over and literally cut off my, I was not even able to talk anymore. It just cut it off, and all this energy is flowing through me, and I literally had, I'm on my back, right? So the tears started coming out of my eyes, sliding down the side of my head past my temple, and she had her hands on me, and it happened to her too. And, and I said, did you, did you feel that? She goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and then she said, and and Noah felt it, too. Her, she's going to have a baby boy in a couple of months, and they, they named him Noah. And she knew Noah experienced the same thing because somehow moms know that stuff. So um, it still happens, not on the same level that it happened when it, the first time, but I know when I'm being watched over and you just know there's a knowing i don't even know no that's it's good enough for me (laughs) yeah because it keeps it alive for you i I know for myself i've told my stories so many times that sometimes they just seem like stories that they didn't really happen and then every so often something will happen um physically or mentally that is like this is real. This is real. You're on the right path. You know, something I want to bring up, there's a, and I know in our country, there's a very high suicide rate, uh, amongst veterans. Yeah. And it's, you know, the last details, which I don't know how many years ago was something like 22 a day. And right. I can't help but think with this conversation, not only is there grief leaving the military, but how many people have had these experiences and PTSD and you know so much of it may be tied together and by you coming forth and sharing your experiences and I think it's so important why for anybody whether it's military or not when you are open about your experiences it can allow other people to say gosh I've had that too I'm not crazy Right. And that's all I want the other veterans to know is that you're not crazy. And I met, I've met veterans that had never spoken about their uh, experience <clears throat> until I opened up to them about it. And one of the, to give you an example, <clears throat> excuse me, we were in, in Denver recently. We had a, a workshop uh, one day, after, the day after I, I spoke on a Friday, and then we had a work, two hour workshop on Saturday. And there was this veteran there from the Vietnam war. And in 1965, he had an experience and he, for the first time ever, talked about it that day. And he couldn't even finish it. He, he barely talked about it, but he talked. 
it opened the door for him. Mm-hmm. So now he has direct knowledge knowing he's not alone, he's not crazy, and it's real. So I, I, I feel, I feel um, blessed to be a part of that man's life, even though I don't remember his name. I just, I still remember his face clearly. Um, but I kind of look at the whole thing that way. I, I love everybody. I know that God is in, within each and every one of us. And uh, I, I know you're talking about, you know, veterans and the problems with suicide. A lot of that has to do with problems with the Veterans Administration and how it's structured and the problems going on there. And, uh, you know, I express that same knowledge and experience to some of the leaders at the VA Manchester Hospital in New Hampshire. Uh, of course, you know what's going on up there where they recently relieved the chief of staff, the director, and the head nurse of their duties. And I've been deeply involved in all of that. And I warned them about, told them about my experience to their faces, to their faces. I said, God's going to humble you in a way that is, you're not going to like if you don't knock this off. And not realizing in the background, but just having totally total faith that God would take care of all these problems uh, that these people were creating for the veterans of New Hampshire. Um, and people were dying too, by the way. Yes. Uh, and so now I'm in, mixed up in the middle of all that, but um, I warned them what would happen and they didn't listen. So now unbeknownst to me, what was going on was the, Boston Spotlight, uh, Boston Globe Spotlight team, the same team that broke the Catholic Church scandal, had been investigating that place for over a year. And so this all blew up in their faces uh, back on July 15th when Boston Globe broke the story. Um, So that's, you know, I don't hold any resentment toward these people. And I told them that because uh, they're God's children, too. And we are all given free will to make the choices we want to make. Mm-hmm. And when we don't make the right choices, that spiritual energy and law that I told you about, that I felt on the other side, the the laws of the nature of the universe don't care whether you understand them or not. Uh, you, you still are held accountable with those laws. And it, God, the whole plan is perfect, no matter what it all looks like on the outer activity it's all perfect. So I just rely on that, knowing that God's got a perfect plan that's far, far more sophisticated and effective than anything I could ever come up with. And so I just walked the path before me fearlessly uh, and knowing I've. it's nice to know when you've got that much power at your back and God's got your back and nothing can go wrong. Um, so that's kind of what I've come to believe these days. And not believe it. I know it. it. It's not like a. I don't have a belief system anymore, as as uh, Suzanne Geisman, who's a retired mm-hmm. Navy commander, likes to say. Uh, everyone has their own BS, yeah. their own system. Uh, uh, I flat out know because I was there, and so there's a big difference in that. There sure uh, is. Yeah. And by the way, if you haven't heard of Suzanne Geisman, 
you really ought to get her on. Oh, I've had her on. Okay. <laughs> I don't remember what episode number. Uh, for our listeners, if you go to wedontdieradio.com, that's a list of all the episodes, and just scroll down. But that is one heck of a conversation. Yeah. And she's also going to be one of the speakers in a couple of weeks at this Afterlife Symposium I'll be speaking at. You know, Tony, I can't help but think, uh, you just said the word fearlessly, that fear is to blame for so many people staying quiet and so many people, you know, not being courageous. It's just, you know, fear can cripple us. And um, gosh, even with when I started with my book and I was so afraid to tell people what I was writing, what the title is, I thought people would think I'm crazy. And the truth is when we can step into that fear on the other side of it, you know, there's, there's, nobody's laughed at me more people than not are like i want to hear about that yeah yeah exactly and we do, by the way fear is just a, the the word fear f-e-a-r is really an acronym that means false evidence appearing real mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sure does so that's what i've come to understand about no matter what the outer activity looks like <clears throat> it's all really under <clears throat> under perfect control yeah Tony, we only have a few minutes left. Is there anything else you want to share that you haven't already? Um, and even if there's any words of inspiration, military person or not, about maybe life and uh, just some inspiration that will help us have a better day today. Well, all of all that stuff I went out and learned, and, and it was interesting, and about the nature of the universe and consciousness and religion and all that decades of knowledge I acquired – uh, that was all great, but really it all boils down to this, just these four things. <clears throat> uh, love love each other. Uh, love one another. Uh, see if I can get this right again. I'm That's okay. Tired. You're on I the spot. Last, love God with all our hearts. Love one another unconditionally. Uh, help each other and take care of this planet. Yeah. Uh, because it's the only home we have right now. And it's really, it boils down to those four simple things. And just if I could say anything to everybody, just go be unconditional love. Just go be unconditional love. And you'll be astonished at how your world changes. Gosh, I can't help but think if you're if we're in unconditional love, it'll change how we think of ourselves when we look in the mirror, when we look at another person, when we look at even our jobs, uh, if unconditional love could talk, it'd be a whole new way of living. Exactly. And that could really bring the, the you know, turn, what is it? Heaven on earth is what I'm, what I'm exactly. looking for. Yeah. Well, Tony, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. It's been a joy. And God bless you. Yeah, thanks. Is there a way people get can get in touch with you? I know, I know, other uh, show hosts and and people are free. If you find this episode on YouTube, you can certainly comment beneath it, um, and you know you can look at that too, Tony. Because I'm sure there's going to be a whole bunch of people that have comments and and want to share with you. But is there a way people can get in touch with you? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, it's it's. I've got a email address. Uh, Tony Woodies with an S T O N Y W O O D Y S N D E at gmail.com. Okay. So my name's not Woodies. It's you just can't put an apostrophe in an email address. So right. Tony Woodies uh, e- N D E at gmail.com. Okay. Great. Now you might get 10,000 emails, but you that's know, okay. that's the price we pay. That's <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I really do want to thank you for being our guest. I'll be looking forward to you you and I meeting in person for a cup of coffee. Well, and uh, yeah, we live close enough and, and invite anybody also to check out IANDS, I-A-N-D-S dot org, because talk about a great resource for stories of um, near-death experiences and a great community. And I look forward to going with you to the Boston chapter and meeting some of the folks. And boy, when you have a, a group of people, a community that's had similar experiences, really gives you strength and courage and, and um, yeah, to continue yeah. on if you haven't met andrea curl it's c-u-r-e-w-i-t-z she's the one that started that group down in boston in needham massachusetts oh. the public. so she's got an amazing story too and uh you're gonna love meeting her i can't wait to introduce you yeah to her. she might be a great uh, but also i want to add the other sure. st germain foundation.org okay Spell it out, and Jermaine does only does not have an e at the end of it. Saint Germain Foundation dot org. Yeah, I'm um, I'm looking forward to that as well because that's yeah. that's right up my alley. <laughs> You're gonna love it. Yeah, so. thanks. And thank for our you. listener, thank you for being our guest here today. All episodes are available at wedontdieradio.com, so that's a home base. And also, there's something there called how um, the Insiders Club and just put in your email address. I promise I don't spam you with lots of emails, but we were talking about grief on this episode and grief is, can be a killer. Literally. Um, you can hit uh, all time depression and a lot of people choose to check out of life. And one of the things I'm, feel very strongly about is once we understand grief, we understand what's going on in our body and our mind, and there's ways to work through it. So I have a free audio called How to Survive Grief, which has even helped people not commit suicide. So I can't share that enough. And also you can have a free copy of my book called We Don't Die, a part of that. And um, what else do I want to say? We have a Facebook group now. If you type in We Don't Die listeners into Facebook, you're going to find over 2,000 people that you are free to share your stories, share to feel, you're free to share your grief, uh, memories of your loved ones, talk about the afterlife. There's so much and it's very often we do feel alone talking about these things and who can we talk to well there you're going to find some friends and i say friends for life people that uh, will share this journey with you so what else lastly i want to say just some words that tony had said and you're not alone you're not crazy you're deeply loved unconditionally and you are important and precious. So if you remember that for today and for always, I want to close this episode by saying my name is Sandra Champlain, and I've been your host on We Don't Die Radio. And I do believe that your life and my life is an education for the soul and that your life here on earth is important. So go make it a great day. Don't wait for it to happen. You have the power to make it a great day. Love unconditionally. See through the eyes of unconditional love and just watch the miracles unfold. So I want to thank you for listening and we'll see you soon.